Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. If you're a returning listener, for finding the show. If you're a first-time listener, always really do want to extend uh, a welcome to all of our new listeners because I think it really is important. We're not funded by any corporate media. We're not funded by large grants from billionaire philanthropists. We're not funded by any foreign uh, governments or anything like that. So every time that we pick up new listeners and new readers, it really does matter to us and it helps to keep Counterpunch going. Going And uh, I really believe in Counterpunch and the importance of an independent alternative media, especially now. And uh, people who listen every week, of course, you're like, oh, here we go again. He's going to do the usual thing. But I, I, I do urge people to consider getting a subscription to the magazine, keeping the magazine going, and in particular, keeping it going in print, on paper. Uh, that is sort of an anachronism today, but something that I personally really love. And I know a lot of you who have reached out to me have also said how much you enjoy having the paper copy mailed to your home or your office or whatever. So uh, it's a great way to support Counterpunch. Get that subscription or just give us a donation through the PayPal. Uh, of course, the fund drive is now over, but we can always accept uh, those tax-deductible donations. Very much appreciated. Um, anyway, let me uh, turn to my guest today. Very happy to have her on the program because... Boy, there's so much going on in terms of uh, the politics and, and what's in the news, but there's also so much going on in terms of the politics on the streets, and sometimes it doesn't get nearly enough attention, and I'm very happy to be able to have somebody on the program today to talk about that and to talk about it in, I think, a very unique and interesting way. Um, I'm very happy to welcome L.A. Kaufman onto the program. Um, L.A. Kaufman is the author of the new book, forthcoming book, How to Read a Protest, the Art of Organizing and Resistance. Very, very important book. And if I could just give a quick little introduction, L.A. Kaufman has been a grassroots organizer for more than 30 years and was the mobilizing coordinator for the massive Iraq War anti-war protests of 2003-2004. She has covered social movement history and activism for The Guardian, N Plus One, many other publications. She is also the author uh, previously of the book Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism, so much to talk about in the activist world right now. L.A. Kaufman, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Um, thank you for the for the book, first and foremost, because it's so, you know, it's so critical. Um, I think that we need to talk about protest and we need to talk about, you know, essentially why we do it. What is it? What is it all about? Is it really effective? Is it a waste of time? I mean, these questions come up all the time, and I guess we could just really kind of begin right there. Tell me about this book, and tell me about the purpose of the book. What is it for? What do we need it for? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right that those questions come up over and over and over again. And uh, so this book, in in a most basic sense, is a is a book of protest literacy. It's like a primer on how and when protests work. Um, though I decided not to approach that question by offering generalizations or uh, you know a, a, an overview guide, um, because part of how protests work is very dependent on the specifics of a particular moment in a particular conjuncture. So the book is called How to Read a Protest, and I come at these questions by, 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 by pulling apart a couple of very specific protests and seeing what you can learn about what their impact is through looking closely at how they were put together and how they were organized. 
And I think that's a great that's a great way of putting it. How they were put together, how they were organized really does in some senses inform not only their function, but it provides us a some sort of a, you know, a, a prism through which we can understand their effectiveness into the future. And I think one of the um I guess you could say entry points or maybe foundational examples that you use in the book uh is the famous uh March on Washington, led by Martin Luther King in 1963, and of course that is remembered historically for what comes after that. Tell me about the March on Washington in 1963 and why that is such an important reference point when examining protests. Well, there's that that protest that that 63 March has really come to stand as almost the epitome uh, in many people's minds of what, a, of what a protest is and what a protest should be. It's, it's moved into the realm of legend and, and out of the realm of history. And there's, there's a way in which, in, in having done so, that event has gotten distorted in the retelling. There's a, there's a, 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 wonderful, uh, a wonderful book uh, by the author Jeannie Theo Harris that uh, called a, a more beautiful and terrible history that came out this year that looks at the myths of the civil rights movement and how they've been used, how they've been weaponized against subsequent movements. And the myths around the 63 March on Washington, I mean, as someone, I've been in the position of organizing many, many protests over the years. And there's a way in which the, the, the 63 March is held up as, as such a shining model of perfection that every subsequent protest falls short when it's, when it's compared against it. And there's a way in which it's almost used to chastise subsequent movements. Nothing, nothing that one organizes, no matter how big it is, no matter how much impact it has, no matter how different it is from the 63 March, in, uh, particularly in mainstream media framing. It will never have the grandeur, never have the mythic quality that the 63 March has. Um, and so for this book, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I did, I had been, you know, I've been a protest organizer for a very long time. I, had, I thought I knew a fair amount about the 63 March, but when I went back and first reread, um, you know, all the major published accounts of the March, and the published you know, studies of the march, uh, and then went into the actual archives that contain the papers of the march organizers, I found that I had a lot of misconceptions about the 63 march, and that um, there were a lot of things about the way that it was it was put together that I hadn't known, and that um, to me were not just you know surprising, interesting historical tidbits to learn but helps shed light on uh, the, this peculiar role that it has, has uh, played as, as both inspiration and, you know, uh, and as uh, chastisement of subsequent movements. You know, one of the things that I hadn't quite realized until I looked closely at the history was it really was the first major march on Washington in American history. That was something that simply hadn't done, been done before. You know, there now have been dozens of these marches, and they've, um, in a lot of times, have you know, seen kind of routinized. It's become uh, a ritual of American politics for people to march on Washington. But it really happened mass march before 1603. It happened, for me, that march, shaped by that culty, um, shaped by the fear that surrounded the event, um, 
because nothing of the sort had ever happened before um, and because there was a lot of racist panic around the idea of bringing that many African-Americans together in one place in one time. The idea was that, first, you know, that would certainly lead to riots and violence. Um, you know, the, if you go back to newspapers in, in the, the months leading up to it, the amount of panic is just extraordinary. Absolutely, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna hopefully uh, be able to iron out any audio technical issues, listeners. So hopefully that's going to be cleared up here in the next minute or two. But um, question for you is regarding that march because 1963, of course, is you know just a matter of you know, 18, 24 months, uh, roughly before the Civil Rights Act, before uh, many of the things that Martin Luther King stood for and fought for and the movement was was fighting for became um, enshrined in law, or at least some of the things that they had fought for being enshrined in law. So I guess my question to you is, is it remembered in this mythical way because of what came out of it, or is it remembered in that mythical way because of the subsequent decades of sanitizing the actual reality and character of both the march and of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King generally? I mean, it's all of the above. You know, I mean, even at the time of the march, uh, you know, when you go back and you look at it, uh, President Kennedy did everything within his power to stop it from happening. And everything, once it, once it was clear it was going to happen anyway, um, to limit uh, any radical edge, to, you know, blunt the impact of it, to move it farther away from the White House, farther away from Capitol Hill. You know, there were all kinds of those. He also, at the very same time, uh, you know, commissioned the Voice of America to film it and create a propaganda film for the State Department to use around the world touting the march as, you know, an example, a shining example of American democracy in action. So he was simultaneously trying to limit it and shut it down and part of creating the myths around it because they were effective propaganda for, uh, you know, for his administration. So, um, you know, so there's a lot to unpack there about, about, um, about it and about um, how the, you know, how that myth came together um, and it, it also, um, uh, you know, there, the, the, the question about the, you know, the impact on the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65, the Voting Rights Act, um, what, what, what the myth tells us was, was it was like, boom, 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 people marched and then the legislation was passed. And, um, and that is in particular what is used as a critique of subsequent movements, because uh, subsequent mass mobilizations, when you evaluate them on whether or not they led to concrete legislative change in the near term, pretty much none of them do. It's just not how they function. And it really isn't how the 63 March on Washington functioned either. I mean, you know, remember we, you know, there, there, there were some major events that took place in between that March in, in August 63 and uh, the, the 64 Civil Rights Act, the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy, for starters. Um, it was not a simple cause and effect between a quarter million people gathering in the streets of D.C. and that legislation passing. And um, when, we, when we think that there was, and we, as a result, feel like subsequent protests aren't working because they don't do the same thing, 
there's a way in which um, you know we lose we lose faith in what these mobilizations actually can accomplish, and they they can accomplish all kinds of things that aren't short-term legislative change. That's a very interesting point, and I guess it immediately calls to mind the question of the protests that come about uh, five years later or so as the protests against the Vietnam War became, uh, you know, a central issue as the 60s came to a close and the war was expanding first, of course, under Johnson and then obviously under Nixon after him. And you did have millions of people ultimately in terms of in the aggregate who mobilized and who protests regularly against that, both in Washington and all over the country and indeed all over the world. And yet those protests didn't yield in either the public imagination or in terms of any kind of political action, the sort of substantive uh, product that, say, the March on Washington in 63 did. Or is thought to have done. I mean, yeah, the, but, you know, but 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 nobody, uh, no serious scholar contests that the protests against the Vietnam War played a role in hastening the end of that war. It's very difficult to pin down exactly what role it played. And this is a, a recurring issue with protests, is that it can be very difficult to say precisely what they did, because you, you, you start asking yourself, well, what would have happened if had there not been the you know protests of the scale and intensity that there were in you know in, in 68 69 70 what would have happened to the conduct of US foreign policy um you know you it, this is a you know this is a, a, a you know an exercise in, in, in counterfactual history that that's not very fruitful but it points to um you know this question of you know we can we can see in the aggregate you know just as for example you know in 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 the aggregate the the big gay and lesbian marches clearly played have played a role in the long term process of social and cultural change around homosexuality in in the United States, but that doesn't mean that any specific march led to specific legislative reform in the short term. Sometimes, you know, this, this, this work of changing attitudes, of changing the parameters of debate, um, of um, making ideas that once seemed outlandish, acceptable, uh, you know, a lot of that work, it's slow, it's halting, it's uneven, it happens through many channels, and protest is one of the things that can drive that work forward. Um, work that is hard to measure quantitatively, um, but yet, you know, uh, yields change that is palpable over time. Can you talk to me a little bit about this question of scale? Because that's always interested me and fascinated me when it comes to protest. Because, you know, in, in my mind, I think, you know, if you say protest, at least for me, I think of giant mobilizations involving hundreds of thousands of people, the March on Washington or the Vietnam, you know, the protests against the Vietnam War or the protests uh, in advance of the Iraq War, uh, you know, any of these large scale protests. But, you know, when I talk to some of the um, veterans of, of, you know, of the left that I'm that I'm 
connected with, people who were, you know, doing a lot of work in the 70s and in the 80s. A lot of them talk about the most effective protests being much smaller in scale and much more uh, precise and and motivated by very specific causes, in particular, uh, you know, the anti-nukes movement or environmental causes or whatever. So talk to me a little bit, if you could, about the sort of dialectical relationship between uh, the scale and the size of uh, protests and their impact. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, you know, my my first book, Direct Action, was was looking at precisely those those smaller kinds of protests uh, that that you're referencing. This this book, um, though it does talk about direct action some and weaves that in and out, is really looking at what what do these mass protests, what do mass mobilizations do? We are under Trump in an era of mass mobilization. There have been more people participating in protests since Trump took office than at any prior period of, of U.S. history by a lot. The numbers are much larger. Um, but I had the experience. I was, as you, as you mentioned, I was the mobilizing coordinator for the huge anti-war protests of 2003-2004, um, some of which you know, shattered records at the time for protest participation. Um, in particular, the February 15, 2003 day of action, um, where there were, there were protests in, in hundreds of cities around the world. It still stands as the single largest day of protest ever in world history. We put it together in about six weeks. It was an incredible sprint. Um, it was an amazing thing to be part of in, in, in terms of, you know, the, the scale and the growth uh, of this mobilization in such a short period of time and how many people stepped up to participate. You know, it felt enormously successful in terms of the numbers we were able to bring out into the streets. And it, of course, did not stop. George Bush from waging war on Iraq. You know, it didn't work in its in in its demand. Um, at, you know, we we organized many subsequent quite large mobilizations, including in in August 2004. Um, again, I was mobilizing coordinator for a massive march outside the Republican convention in New York City. Um, the uh, a, a top police official, uh, you know, at the time they said it was about four or five hundred thousand, um, but it later slipped out in the course of a legal deposition that no, in fact, we had 800,000 people marching that day, which stands as one of the, you know, maybe top five largest protests ever in U.S. history. It did not stop George Bush from getting reelected, right? So I, uh, those experiences of being part of these mobilizations of having done a lot of direct action, smaller scale protests that worked and being part of these large mobilizations that at least in short term policy terms did not. Um, that, that set of questions is, um, you know, what I had been chewing on for years before, before I, I, I picked up uh, the pen to write this book. Um, and there is a way in which it, it can almost feel like there's an inverse relationship between size and effectiveness. Like the larger the protest is, the more watered down its impact can feel. Um, for some kinds of mobilizations, I think that's true. I think that, you know, you can, there, there have been mobilizations where, you know, the fact that you had 100,000 or 250,000 people in the street really didn't 
matter. It didn't sway those in power. It didn't um, build a movement. It didn't have an enduring impact. Um, you know, this this gets back to to you know the point that I was alluding to early on, which is um, you know that you can't. It's very difficult to just generalize and say like, okay, so large marches are are always toothless and and ineffective. They're not. Um, but what so what I'm trying to do in this book is look at the specific ones. So like look at that 63 march on Washington and then what I counterpose it to are the 2017 women's marches, um, you know, which happened the day after uh, Donald Trump was inaugurated um, to see, in fact, how very different those were from any of the mass mobilizations that had happened before um, in their in their structure and character and composition and how that ended up profoundly shaping the character of the resistance to Trump going forward. That's such an important question that I would like to unpack a little bit more when we come back from the break. But we are going to take a quick break. Again, the book, absolutely uh, got to get this Got to get this book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance, L.A. Kaufman. Uh, make sure you pick up a copy of that. We'll link to it in the notes here. Uh, enjoy the music. We'll be right back after the break. No, no, the living ain't easy In these times No, the living ain't easy No, no, in these times No
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with L.A. Kaufman. Just before the break, we were talking about this very interesting observation, pretty fascinating, actually, the correlation or maybe lack of correlation between the size of a given march and, you know, the impact that it has, impact on the ruling class, impact on popular culture, the, you know, political discourse and all of these other um, things. And so the question, the question that I want to begin with is, how do we really measure the effectiveness of a protest? And I'm going to, I'm going to just elaborate just for a second, if I could. I felt, so you talked about that February 15th, 2003 protest against the Iraq war. That was literally the first political event that I ever attended, at least as an adult with some political ideology. And it was profound for me. It was a profound experience to be involved in something that had so many hundreds of thousands of people in so many cities. Uh, well, it's millions in many cities, hundreds of thousands where I was uh, in, in Los Angeles. And um, frankly, I thought it was invigorating. It was exciting. And then Within a very short period of time, we were in the war, and I felt like it was it was nothing. It, it it amounted to nothing, and yet here we are, 15 years later. I'm doing my political work. I'm involved in all kinds of different things, organizing different things, involved in various networks, and hopefully building uh, and so forth. And it's difficult for me, just even in my own life, to quantify the impact that a protest had, let alone what impact it might have had on the society broadly. Right. I mean, those, you know, those, those questions you're pointing to are, um, some of them are really tough to answer. And so some of the, sometimes the way that a protest can have an enduring impact is, the way in which that February 15, 2003 protest, you know, had uh, an impact on you is that it becomes a point of entry into a movement and it becomes, uh, you know, a, 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 an event that, that transforms the participants. There's times when the most important lasting impact that a protest has is on the protesters themselves um, by... Um, giving them that sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves um, by giving them the sense of collective power and by giving people the hope, the sense of possibility that they need to keep organizing, particularly in the face of setbacks and defeats, which, you know, are, 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 are frequent and recurring in this line of work. I mean, when you're protesting, you're, when you were turning to protest, you were doing so by definition because you have less power in the situation. That's why you're not governing. You know, pro protests are weapons of the weak. And uh, we are, you know, the odds are often very long against us. And there, um, it takes a special kind of tenacity to keep organizing in the face of setbacks. And there's something transformative in that experience of being part of a huge crowd of people who share your goals, about the bodily experience of that, that, that can really change people's lives. 
There's no doubt about that. And I, I, I could point to a, a bunch of experiences that I had uh, in many different protests that certainly illustrate that point. Now, uh, another question that I would like to ask you, uh, since you talked about the women's marches and, uh, you know, in the wake of Trump's inauguration, one thing that I noticed was the stark difference in the way that that, uh, that the protests around Trump were covered by the media versus those protests in 2003, where we had millions of people in the streets, tens of millions around the world, and it seemed like not even the local news would cover it. I mean, the climate uh, in the post-9-11 period, you know, those few years after 9-11 was so uh, different in terms of the media. And can you just comment a little bit about the way that the media uh, covered those versus the way that the media has covered more recent protests and maybe what that tells us both about the political climate or maybe about the protests themselves? I mean, I actually disagree with you. You know, having having been one of the organizers of those protests, I remember we were on the front page all around the world. I mean, we had, we were, we commanded <clears throat> the next day, we were the, you know, the above the fold headline everywhere in the world. The, the, the fact that there had been this massive global uprising against the war um, that, you know, didn't didn't mean that there was lasting coverage of the anti-war movement. It was a moment, um, uh, but uh, you know, I didn't I didn't see huge differences in like the next day coverage of of those mobilizations and the women's marches. Um, but I but I you know there were many other kinds of of differences. There's there's no question that the women's marches um, got. Uh, exceptionally friendly coverage when they happened. I think they got friendlier coverage than than you know many other mobilizations. Um, partly just because of that moment, because people were in such kind of uh, shock and disarray in in coming to terms with the fact that that Donald Trump was going to be sworn into office. I never say he was elected because I don't think he legitimately was. Um, but that's another whole topic. Um, uh, but you know, there was there was also um, though the the composition of the marches and and um, and of the mar- and the leadership of the various local marches was was complex. There was a preponderance of middle class white women um, in these marches. They were all permitted and legal events. They were very orderly. They, you know, they, they, the, the face that they put forward was very mediagenic. Um, so they, you know, they did get very friendly coverage uh, right in the immediate aftermath, with, without a doubt. Yeah, I guess I guess that's kind of really what I'm saying. I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that they got that the 2003 they got no coverage, but it was it it seemed at least as a participant uh, and and in following it, it seemed very adversarial. It seemed uh, not to cover the issues that had brought millions of people into the streets. It was almost like the issues were an afterthought that the protests themselves were just the spectacle to be covered rather than the fact that millions of people were desperately trying to do anything they could to stop a slaughter. Right. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, there, there's, there's something to that. I mean, it, it um, those protests also, those protests also were adversarial towards a particular government in a way that you know, the women's marches, it was a very deliberate political choice not to make them first and foremost about Trump, that they were first and foremost about women coming together 
in, you know, to, together to, to, to feel collective power and to foreground the issues they were passionate about as opposed to being first and foremost, like March Against Trump. Um, so that, you know, so that framing was a little different. And even, you know, even uh, in February, you know, the, mar- the, the actual war didn't start for another month after February 15th, but the writing was on the wall at that point. It was pretty clear. Um, you know, obviously we hoped until the very last moment that we could dissuade George Bush from barreling into the war, but it was pretty clear we weren't going to win. And, and that, that colored the coverage as well, I think. Definitely. There was certainly that sort of feeling of resignation. Now, um, in terms of what comes after a protest, that's always really fascinating to me. So talk a little bit about some of the things that some of the things that you've noted in in, in breaking down and in analyzing these various protests that you've looked at, how they evolve once the protests themselves are over. I mean, when I think about my own protesting experiences throughout the Bush administration and certainly during the Obama years, it was very, very different what came after the protests in 2003-2004 versus what came out of the protests uh, during Occupy and potentially maybe what's evolving now. And it seems to me that almost as as important as the protests themselves is what they ultimately lead to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the anti-war marches, um, they were were put together by... Uh, a coalition uh, which grew into a coalition of hundreds of groups around the country, um, but they were mostly free. I mean, some of the groups were newly formed, but it was mostly existing groups coming together. Um, and um, in some ways, when I look back at that work in 2003 and 2004 that we did, the relationships that were built through those coalitions um, are, I think, one of the most uh, enduring things that we created and built. Um, And in particular, there was a very, very deliberate uh, decision to build United for Peace and Justice as a multiracial coalition after a long period when the peace movement had been overwhelmingly white. Our steering committee was 50% people of color, um, you know, representing mostly organizations of color. And those cross-racial relationships that were built you know, continue to be important in a variety of contexts now. Um, but to me, uh, in this moment, uh, I'm incredibly struck by how different what came out of the women's marches is from anything I've seen come out of uh, a major protest mobilization in the past. You know, those marches were not started by an existing organization. They started as Facebook posts. There were two people... Uh, a, a, a retired attorney in Hawaii and a fashion designer in New York who put posts on Facebook saying, we need to have a march after Trump is inaugurated. And it, it just took off virally on the internet. Um, and from the beginning, there was this quality of a spontaneous groundswell to what happened and to how they came together and how quickly it went from there being uh, a plan to have a march on Washington to a decision that there were that people wanted to organize their own sister marches in other cities, which mushroomed into more than 650 sister marches by by the time the mobilization happened, um, which is a number that far exceeds the coordinated protest that had ever happened to that date. There had never 
in the United States been that many simultaneous tests in one day. And, and none of that was, you know, there was, there was no, there was no central planning for any of that. It was a decentralized bottom-up grassroots led ad hoc kind of mobilization where, you know, some of the, 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 the forces that, that stepped up to make it happen were people who, uh, you know, were associated with existing organizations. I don't want to say it all the stuff that came out of the blue. There were lots of longstanding groups like Planned Parenthood and the National Organization for Women or the NAACP that played a role in in that mobilization. But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't how it started off. That wasn't what, that wasn't um, where the leadership came from. Um, that wasn't, uh, you know, the, the, the driving force behind the mobilization. The driving force was this restless mass of women who were alarmed and uh, desperate to do something and who, you know, decided that this was the moment to take to the streets in this, you know, staggeringly large number of communities around the country. And the thing that's so... Uh, remarkable to me is the extent to which those same qualities, the decentralized, restless, bottom-up, grassroots, led by women, um, you know, went on to, um, to, to, to form itself into thousands and thousands of groups around the country. There, you know, in the months after the Women's March, there were some 6,000 new resistance groups that were founded all around the country, um, <clears throat> mostly by women, very locally rooted in every single congressional district all around the country with that same kind of geographic spread and ubiquity that we saw in the marches themselves, um, uh, with, again, that same quality of people, mostly women, stepping up from the grassroots to create something new not waiting for permission or direction from an established organization. Um, and that, um, you know, those, those qualities, that, that is what the resistance to Trump um, has been. You know, and it has been enormous in scale. All these, these, these vast numbers, as you know, 14 to 22 million people have marched since Trump took office. Um, uh, that, that, uh, that 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 kind of massive decentralized movement has you know here here we find you know in the in the in the wake of the midterms election that that um, was what carried the day for the Democrats in the midterms. It wasn't the Democratic Party that did that. It was it was all the ground level hustle of get out the vote work of the you know the phone calling and the texting and the canvassing that huge numbers of volunteers get around the country um, that, that carried the day of where Democrats won at the midterms. And it, it came out of, you know, exactly that, that movement that in a lot of ways was generated out of those marches. Um, before we, before we run out of time, I want to ask you just a couple of, a couple of more questions that always kind of really sit at the forefront of my mind when thinking about protests. Um, 
You're obviously a veteran of, of countless protests. Talk to me about NGOs, because that's one of the things that was really striking to me as I got involved in protest and activism work and in seeing uh, what what protests really look like, what movement building really looks like, and particularly during the Bush administration, and then how that changed uh, as the politics changed. So what role do you what role do you think the uh, that NGOs and, and, and other such organizations play in movement building and in mass movement building? And I mean, is it a positive role, a negative role? Is it sometimes one and the other, both? Uh, how do you read the role of NGOs and other outside entities in, in this sort of movement? Yeah, well, I don't know if I would call them outside entities because they are so much part of the fabric of what our movements are now. I mean, I think the role has been outsized. Um, one can simultaneously, as I do, admire Many, a great many of these non-governmental organizations think that they have done solid, valuable, essential work, admire the people who are part of them, and recognize that um, the fact that they play such a leading role in grassroots organizing in the U.S. comes with a lot of problems. You know, organizations have a lot of organizational self-interest that uh, whether it's pleasing their funders, you know, and and ensuring an ongoing stream of funding, which you need to do to keep your organization alive or, um, you know, concerns with branding and and having, you know, a particular um, set of associations out in the world for who your organization is and what, what it is. Um, Those, those, those factors really constrain and limit what people do. And we see, um, you know, part of, part of what gave those women's marches that, that, that feeling of uprising that was so powerful on that day for anyone who was there. There was this feeling of, um, you know, there was something about it spilling out of the, the, the containers. Um, uh, and part of the containers that I was spilling out were the containers of NGOs, the containers of organizations who, you know, have memberships or followers or whatever and, and mobilize them, but um, but have their own organizational interest as a as a a, 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 a leading concern that limits what they do. Um, so uh, you know, I think uh, that you know the, the the rise of what what some um, critics call the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, you know, it's it's it, it's a um, it's a ruling class strategy to limit and contain movements, and it and it does that. It does it does work at that. So there's so the NGOs are simultaneously you know some of the most valuable players that we have on the playing field. And, um, you know, they're, they're players whose, whose moves are limited and constrained. And um, I also wanted to ask you about uh, forms of organization and, and, and how those are changing. I mean, you mentioned the women's marches emerging out of Facebook posts and Facebook groups and so forth. But uh, the, the, the promise of what the Internet and social media was going to be, I remember, you know, when we were talking about it in 2002 and 2003 and in 2004, it doesn't it, it, it today it it 
functions, I think, in a slightly different way, at least from what many of us imagined it would be. And so can you talk a little bit about the, the ways in which protests are organized now and maybe some of the sort of benefits and, and uh, uh, negative consequences of how that form of organiz- organizing has evolved? Well, the, I mean, obviously, the, the rise of the Internet has made it easier to get the word out about things doing that, like going into a high traffic area in a city and leafleting, you reach a different cross section of people than you're going to reach by using social media outreach, which, you know, tends to um, keep you in a bubble. Um, uh, uh, You know, I, I, I think the very most basic fact of protest is that getting people together in physical space matters, that it has a power and an impact that um, getting them to all sign an online petition never could. And um, I think that, that the way in which internet mobilizing has kind of overwhelmed all the other tools that we used to have, like nobody has a phone tree. Probably nobody even knows what a phone tree is anymore. We used to have these rapid emergency response uh, networks where you know you had X number of people's phone numbers, you knew how to just call them and, and you could get people to, you know, if there was something equivalent to Trump firing sessions and you needed to have an emergency demonstration, you would get on the phone and you would call people and you could pull people out in hours. Um, there's, there's some of those, those tools that um, carried with them closer social connections that we've lost. So even as I welcome uh, some of the things about this shift to uh, you know, internet-driven mobilization that have expanded our, our reach and our scale, um, I'd like to see us returning to more in-person trainings, more in-person conferences, more printed material that we share offline, you know, in the analog world, things like action guides. We used to always, we used to never have a mobilization without an accompanying accompanying action guide. Uh, That doesn't happen in the same way. You know, there's like, whatever, there's, there'll be like action toolkits that have the memes that you can share on social media, but there aren't the same kinds of guides that used to talk um, people through, um, not just the issue, but the strategy and some ideas about organizing. Um, so, uh, you know, without wanting to be like the old geezer who's saying it was so much better in the old days, um, I think there are tools that we've lost along the way and that I would like to see our movements recuperate. I couldn't agree more. I think it's, uh, I think that's very well said. All right. Um, we're just about out of time. I got to squeeze in one more question if I could. Uh, we're now living through a period where, uh, when, when we're talking about protest, we're not the only ones protesting. We're not the only ones mobilizing. We're not the only ones organizing the far right, fascist elements, all kinds of very, very ugly, uh, political, uh, manifestations are now organizing themselves and mobilizing themselves and also protesting and getting out into the streets. This is something I think that we obviously need to think about and discuss and strategize about. And I know I'm kind of asking you a very large question here and trying to ask you to do it in a very short amount of time. But to what extent do you think we, the uh, uh, mass organizing needs to consider these new challenges that we're facing in the era of Trump? I mean, 
yeah, obviously those those are those are they're pre- very pressing questions. I will note that the right is not mass mobilizing um, unless you want to count Trump's rallies, which are actually something that that we should be taking a little more seriously than we do, I think. Um, but you know the alt the alt right, the way that they have mobilized, it is much more the direct action model that we've seen on the left of smaller groups. Um, using so not having large numbers on the streets, having relatively modest numbers on the streets, but who are using stronger tactics. In fact, the you know the the direct action movements of the left have been overwhelmingly nonviolent, and uh, where they have been uh, you know uh, scooched out of pure nonviolence, it's been just into property destruction. They have not been violent towards people. The alt-right has obviously been enormously violent towards towards people, um, but they, um, uh, you know, they they they, they do not have um, mass mobilizing capacity. They are almost always relatively small in numbers, and um, as, as we we have seen on a on a on a couple of occasions, there was one very powerful instance in Boston. Um, and then the one-year anniversary of Charlottesville, it is actually ma- that's a moment when numbers on our side matter powerfully. Um, you know, there are moments when larger is not more powerful for our side, but when it comes to counter-protesting the alt-right, I think larger is more powerful, and that's you know, surrounding them with masses of people who are vehemently opposed to their message of division and hate has proved very effective in undermining their power, undermining their morale, shrinking their platform, pushing them back to, you know, into the dark corners where they should go, go away and leave us alone. Um, You know, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, uh, it's very alarming in this moment, the extent to which the messages of those groups are being adopted, embraced, and celebrated from the White House on down, in which there's a becoming more and more official uh, ideology of the Republican Party. Um, the Republican Party is owing, you know, is, is where it's finding successes is not in spite of overt racism, it's because of it. Um, that's very troubling, and that's not something that's easily contested in the streets. But when it comes to, you know, the fascists marching in the streets, it's numbers on our side, it's mass numbers on our side that shut them down. Indeed. So much more to say on that subject and so much more to say uh, in general about what we've been talking about here today. But unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, again, the book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. L.A. Kaufman is the author. I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio, for writing this book and for speaking with me today. So much for having me. It's really a pleasure. And listeners, thank you, as always, for listening, for checking out the show, for supporting Counterpunch. And, uh, of course, we'll be back, and I'll chat with you again real soon.